Welcome to Connections, a healthy gambling and gaming podcast. My name is Tana Russell, Assistant Director with Evergreen Counts on Problem Gambling and host of the podcast. And I am joined in this episode with a return guest, Dr. Stephanie diaz Morel. She's Associate Pref- Professor of the Social Work Department at Penn West University and also founder of Reboot and Recover, which promotes and assists in living a well-balanced life by lessening the negative impacts of technologies. And we are also joined by Dr. Hillary Cash, co-founder and chief clinical officer of Restart Life, the nation's first and foremost treatment program for video game addiction treatment, blockchain gaming, screen time, internet gaming, social media use, and others. In this episode, we talk about gaming, gaming disorder, publications that greatly shaped their understanding of these conditions, what is interesting and fascinating and different about this condition from substance use disorders and other things, as well as what we don't know. What do we still need research on? So I hope you enjoy the episode and get to hear what they have to say. Excellent. Well, glad to have you both here. Uh, (laughs) But first, let's record you guys introducing yourselves. Uh, I know who you are, but the the listeners won't necessarily know who you are. And then we get a a name to go with your voice. Um, So maybe Dr. Cash, we'll, we'll start with you. Well, hello, everyone. I'm glad you're listening to this podcast. Um, My name is Hillary Cash. I have been uh, a clinician for decades, and I've been specializing um, in internet addiction and or internet related screen related addictions since the mid 90s. Um, And in 2009 was uh, able to start along with Cosette Ray the first uh, program in the United States that was uh, a residential treatment program dedicated to helping people with internet addiction. So I've been doing this a long time. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And we we appreciate your work. I might ask you some more in a minute about what you were seeing in the 90s versus now. Uh, But Stephanie, do you want to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about you? Yeah, absolutely. So hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Stephanie Diaz-Morel. I'm also a licensed clinical social worker and a professor that teaches future clinicians, future colleagues seeking their MSW. Uh, I've been in this space for quite a bit of time as well. In 2013, I founded Reboot and Recover, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that focuses on finding solutions for a balanced living in this technology-driven world. The uh, inspiration for that nonprofit actually started from some work that I was doing in a residential substance use disorder treatment facility back in 2009, when we started seeing some of the beginning stages of potentially cross addictions from people who were no longer using substances, they were abstaining from them, um, but we started to see some other behavioral uh, concerns regarding the use of technology. Uh, And so through conversations with other providers in the area that I was practicing at the time, there was um, an increase of, or there was a yearning, I should say, for more knowledge, right, for increasing their knowledge and resources on what to do with this behavior, which anecdotally, some of them were seeing in their practices as well, right? These were physicians, they were case managers, they were other therapists, um, they were teachers, right? We were all part of a large consortium. And so as a result, was encouraged to start Reboot and Recover uh, to help 
disseminate some of the information of the resources that exist of what does it look like? How can we prevent this? And uh, here we are nearly 10 years later um, and continuing to do that work, right? A lot of the prevention, the education, some of the treatment um, and research in this space. Excellent. And obviously you both seem to be pretty fascinated by this field and gaming and uh, Hillary, you at, at the time were kind of pioneering the, the treatment of this disorder. What is it about this that you guys find fascinating? Well, I will <clears throat> jump in. I'll just start by saying that I really honestly think a lot of my motivation back in the 90s was that I had a, my own young child and I had a very clear sense that uh, what I was seeing among the clients who were coming in with a problem related to the internet, it might've been with pornography or video games or, uh, <laughs> you know, social spaces that were, you know, the forerunners of what we call social media, um, that this was, that I was seeing the beginning of something that was going to be growing bigger and bigger over time. And I wanted to understand it well enough so that my son would not end up in the therapist's office dealing with the problem. And when, when I uh, first encountered my, my first clients, you know, in the mid nineties, I didn't myself have a computer. You know, I really was learning from them about the problem. And um, so I think my motivation was really very personal as well as being motivated because I wanted to help the clients who were coming in. And by 1999, when I met Jay Parker and we started Internet and Computer Addiction Services, which was an out, outpatient clinic, um, by that time, I really, you know, I did have a computer and I, you know, I really, I did understand this in a much more uh, clinically wise way. I had, you know, I'd been learning a lot more over the span of, let's say, five years. And um, and it and it was fascinating because it was new and it was pioneering work and there weren't you know people would look at me like what are you talking about and it it was so fun to encounter those few people here and there who you know who were really tuned in and understanding what was going on and and feeling like yeah, this is very important and, and uh, we have to somehow understand it and get, you know, help people understand it so that parents can uh, be prepared to protect their children from the, the potential harms and so forth. So that's what it was like for me, my motivations, both personal and professional. Yeah, so... Stephanie, what are uh, some things that fascinate you about this field? Uh, so when I was in college, right, I was getting my undergraduate degree. I knew that the field of study I wanted to focus on was psychology after probably my second or third class. Um, of just doing like, these are the required classes that you need to do in order to write your prerequisites or your required courses before you decide a plan of study. And after I took my first intro to psych class, I said, wow, I, this, this just feels, this feels like what I want to focus my career on is learning more about this. Um, later on, I found out it actually wasn't psychology. It was social work, which is a similar field, but just a little bit of a different lens. And um, so, you know, in those beginning stages of, of going to, to, to college and being a, still an adolescent, right, a young adult, um, I myself was starting to um, become interested in what is addiction, what does addiction really mean? And, um, you know, I had a, a personal experiences with this because there were uh, family members and friends of family members or, you know, my friends, family members who had some kind of story with addiction um, that I'd been, I've seen personally or experienced just 
by hearing them share their stories and, and their struggles with, you know, with this disorder. Uh, so when I um, was learning more about human psychology, I kind of gravitated towards taking some electives that focused on addiction studies. Um, and in that work is when my interest for gaming disorder really started to develop because it it was still not, of course, included formally in the DSM-5 like it is now as a diagnostic consideration warranting further study. It was still kind of just a concept. And some of the research was being formed by it. You know, Hillary, of course, is one of the pioneers in this area. She knows it was starting to, to grow traction. And um, I began to... Uh, explore more into the research that existed at that time. And so every single assignment where we had the liberty of writing a research paper and assignment on any um, addiction, right, or potential behavioral problematic, um, problematic behavior that we saw, I would always say, can I write about gaming disorder, right? And that was the term at the time, but that's what it's known as now. And the professors gave me that leeway. So that's when I started kind of gaining this, you know, interest in observing the behavior a bit more, understanding it, because it's so different from a substance use disorder. Um, the way that it manifests in people, there might be some overlap of what we see, but it really is a unique behavior. And as time has evolved and video games have evolved, so too has the way that people respond um, to games and the almost the symptomologies that we see in gaming disorder are just so much more severe at times than they were beforehand. So a lot of that early research has built upon what we know gaming disorder to be now, and it's just constantly evolving. Uh, and, and, you know, that's some of the things that fascinate me the most about it is, all right, when we get to a level where we're starting to kind of understand what gaming disorder looks like, what signs and symptoms people can be aware of if they want to help their loved ones or those they care about, then something changes. And um, now we have, you know, another, another part of this um, disorder that we have to consider as well. And what's the impact going to be on others? Yeah, I think the constant change of it is very fascinating to me as well. There's no predicting what's going to come out next, what kind of impact it'll have on people next. You know, alcohol has been around forever. There might be a new brand of alcohol or a new product, but it's not going to vastly change how we perceive or treat alcohol use disorder. But with gaming, um, it's it's fairly un, un, uncontainable in its end for creativity mm -hmm. in what types of games will be able to be played, platforms, mechanics. Um, I find that fascinating. And, and, and it seems like if you want a good challenge in your career, this is this will probably keep challenging you forever. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to gamify your career. <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> oh yeah do either of you have any questions for each other about your work in this in this field or anything well i have not heard a lot about stephanie's uh work with her nonprofit, and would love to hear more about it yeah tell us about reboot and recover a little bit more yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, right, the concept of it was really from encouragement of other stakeholders when I was at the time practicing in South Florida. Uh, so when we initially began the nonprofit organization, our mission in 2013, um, and, you know, Hillary, of course, you you were there, you're living it as one of the pioneers. So, you know, where we were at in the field at that point, we just had the DSM um, finally put out their criteria for gaming disorder. And there was a lot of skepticism, right? We have a series of probably about 30 papers that went back and forth between all of the 
international experts in, in academia and some in clinical practice in this area talking about what does it mean to have this diagnosis in the DSM, right? All varying perspectives um, from, from these, uh, you know, research articles. And if anyone out there, I know we're going to talk about books and literature later, but uh, if anyone is interested in gaining these perspectives, there's a lot uh, of articles that are available um, and aren't behind a paywall about these conversations um, that you can look up easily on Google Scholar. But anyways, um, so in 2013, we started by doing a lot of grassroots work. We were doing prevention work in schools, in community mental health centers, um, at universities. We'd go to uh, you know colleges, and we were primarily working with schools, colleges, and uh, mental health clinics that worked with populations who um, had, had less resources than others, right? We were working with people who are known to experience larger health disparities and uh, explaining to them, you know, what is gaming disorder? What are the potentials? So for probably about the first five years, a lot of it was, this is what gaming disorder is. It exists. A lot of questions of, does it really exist? Is it, you know, what what do I look for? Um, should I care? This isn't, you know, a, a lot of the community would also say, well, this isn't as big of a deal as substances, right? I'll just let my child stay indoors and play video games for 12, 14 hours a day, because at least I know they're not out in the community where the potential of they can be using substances and develop an addiction to a substance that way. Um, so it was a lot of conversations about that, you know, with community members, and it shaped so much also of the research that we went out and did in the communities after having, you know, some of these focus groups and a bit more of the anecdotal data where we were talking with them on what their experiences are with technology. And as technology was evolving at the speed of light um, and not until most recently now, uh, I, I think after March of 2020, that people started to really understand a bit more when they were you know, isolated um, and, and unable to contact others or spend more time outdoors the true impact that the overuse of gaming can have on a person, right? We might still have some of that connection, but the, or some of the communication, but the connection is lacking because we're, we are socially isolated, physically isolated from other people. Um, so yeah, a lot of our, a lot of our work has been in this grassroots efforts to do prevention. The prevention education has led to more research, of course, partnering with academic institutions, and then um, continuing the work to this day, have, have evolved some of that prevention work to also speak directly with clinicians who are on the ground, um, you know, who have the potential of working with clients every day who might be experiencing signs and symptoms of gaming disorder, and providing them with the best tools of how to uh, work with those who are experiencing gaming disorder. It's important work, Stephanie, and I'm very envious of a country like South Korea, mm. which recognized this as a problem, what, 18, 19 years ago, yeah. and really undertook an enormous public education campaign back then. And as far as I know, it's ongoing, although I intend to go to the ISSBA uh, conference in August, which is being held in Korea, and, I, and I'll find out then how it stands right now. But it, isn't it just frustrating, maybe because there's not formal recognition yet in the DSM, we don't have that government support for public education that I'm so envious of in, in, in South Korea. You know, and so it's up to people like you and your colleagues and me and my colleagues to spread the word and and try to help people understand you know the serious potential in gaming so i'm glad you're doing what you're doing i just wish it could be replicated you know everywhere yeah 
Thank you, Hillary. And, and so much of the beginning work, you know, that, and, and the motivation to uh, do this came from what you were doing. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have, I think, um, as much fervor or support without me being able to point back to this resource and say, look at the amazing things that they're doing at Restart. How can we garner some of the resources to help people in the community with this? And then, you know, of course, refer them off to treatment when needed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, you know, it's it, it, this is why I'm very appreciative of Evergreen Council on problem gambling and gaming because you folks were pioneers yourselves, it seems to me, in recognizing the overlap between gambling and gaming and including gaming in your title. Uh, so, you know, and now doing the work that you're doing to, you know, and you're working with the two of us to offer training to clinicians in um, gaming disorder. Yeah. You know, we're all working at this and trying to get the word out and trying to train clinicians so that they do understand not only what they're seeing, because I, I find that many of them are still too quick to dismiss this as a legitimate disorder. So we need them to understand what they're seeing and then give them tools and ideas for how to treat it effectively. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, credit to um, Maureen and her partners several years ago it was shoot it's got to be seven or eight years ago now that we added it to our our mission statement um, and there is just so much overlap between gaming and gambling and I find I cannot have a conversation about youth gambling without talking about gaming mm -hmm. right because Absolutely. of how how much they can access there and and when people say we just we just want you to talk about youth problem gambling I'm like okay but I'll talk, I'm going to talk about the games too. I'll just, I'll just focus on the, on the gambling within the games. Uh, but we can't leave that out or else uh, these days you're leaving out the main platform. Yeah. For them, for them to gamble. For youth. Absolutely. For youth. And, and even some, and even many adults, right? Average age of gamer is now 33, roughly 50, 50 male, female. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Adults as well. And, you know, just thinking about um, thinking about where we are, our stance in the US on this issue, on the support for clinicians or prevention specialists to go out and do the work. I'm hopeful for a bit of the future because the, you know, the CAMERA Act was recently passed. Um, and oh, it that was. was. Good. Yes. Hey, absolutely. Updating on that. Yes, Good. right. So for anyone who's listening and might not know, feel free to Google this, right? Or look it up in whatever search platform you utilize. Um, but essentially what the Camera Act is the Children and Media Research Advancement Act. Um, and it's been something that's been advocated for for several years in the legislative, you know, federal legislative floor and was finally um, just passed. So it's allotting money to understanding uh, the impacts of, you know, screen time, um, to give it a nice round umbrella term, right? The impacts of screen time on children and youth. And this is really unique because, for example, the National Institutes of Health, they're the largest funders in the U.S. for doing this public research in the area. And, you know, Hillary, myself, other experts are very familiar with NIH funding and, and some of the wonderful things that it can provide. But there was never a mechanism uh, that NIH had specifically tailored to doing research in this area. And so when someone would apply to do research so that they can find those solutions for clinicians, for prevention specialists, for families, for children um, on, on best ways to, you know, work, work with gaming disorder and how we can, we can find solutions to combat it. The, the funding mechanism, um, you know, the application was up against other areas as well that were just as important to fund. But now there's a pool of money that's been separated just for this funding. It's actually 47.5 billion um, is what was proposed to help um, find some biomedical research that guides this, you know, um, innovative approaches to, to how to help children 
combat some of those negative impacts or adverse impacts that we can see from the overuse of screen time. So I'm really helpful, hopeful that from this money, we're going to start seeing a lot more research coming in that focuses on this area so we can pinpoint those exact culturally specific interventions, prevention strategies. We can find you know, um, responses and answers that are going to be tailored to whatever populations you're working with. Excellent. I really appreciate that you mentioned that when it comes to interventions for screen use issues and, and addressing gaming, uh, they can be culturally specific. You know, video gaming is such a global uniter uh, in our current day and age, right? People will game against or with people from all over the world crossing time zones and languages and they can they can connect online and I think it's it, it's so important that when when we're looking at interventions we take that into consideration how diverse the population so is I I want to maybe jump in here to just say I came back uh, after three weeks in Kenya in January and you know, I'm undertaking this international research to try to understand in the less uh, technically developed countries and regions of the world, uh, how having access to the internet is impacting individuals, mm. families, communities, society. And it was very fascinating there to realize that um, gaming is really not the primary problem there because it is too expensive. It requires more expensive equipment. It, you know, if you, to do the kind of gaming uh, that we're talking about, uh, it requires having plenty of internet access. So even if you have just a smartphone, you still have to have a lot of internet access to play more than just the most casual short game. And in, the, in Kenya, a lot of people don't, can't afford access to the internet for very long. And, uh, or, and they definitely, most people can't afford gaming computers and that kind of thing. And so what is the problem there is gambling. You know, the AI assisted invitations to gamble you know, somebody's interested in watching a soccer match and they're and they're being pinged, want to place a bet on who's going to win. So gambling and social media are the two, and pornography are the ones, are the mm. things that are the real problems there, as opposed to gaming. Yes, gaming is a universal problem, but it's much bigger in some regions than in others. Right, much more prevalent where the internet access isn't a barrier or the equipment right. isn't a barrier. Yeah, that would make sense. That makes sense. Um, what are some, be it books, articles, news stories, is there any literature that has really helped you uh, wrap your head around this condition? Or if you were to recommend for someone to read who likes to read and wants to understand gaming disorder more, what would you recommend to them? that's been very helpful to you? Well, I, there are a couple things I'll jump in to say. One is Reset Your Child's Brain by Victoria Dunkley. It's a wonderful guide for parents and it really doesn't just talk about uh, gaming disorder. It's really talking about screen use, child development and, uh, and, and some good guidelines on how to keep things healthy. And so I like very much her work and have found it extremely useful with, you know, as a recommendation for parents when, when parents are coming and asking, you know, what can I read? I really like her work. And there's, there are uh, websites that I recommend people to as well that I particularly like. Um, for instance, uh, the uh, Fair Play for Kids, out of Boston, it has just tons of really excellent people doing excellent work uh, on problems of screens in schools and problems of parenting. And they have uh, 
groups of teenagers coming together to kind of spread the word among teenagers and they're just doing and they're doing legislative advocacy and they're doing all kinds of really good work uh, uh, zonein.ca is full of important information and you can get trainings there so what we maybe could provide i'd be happy to provide is a list of resources and recommended reading um, that you can post if you like along with the podcast absolutely look at. Yeah. absolutely and i actually i may already have it although you may have added to it since the last time you sent it to me because it would have been a, a a year or so ago when we were creating yeah. foundations and gaming disorder yeah we have that as a resource list in there yeah yeah we can add that that to this as well that's a great idea has it been a year already oh my gosh time where does time go <laughs> i know we're on the third edition of that training program now oh it's just launched isn't that crazy that's yes well that's wonderful too right i mean just yeah. seeing it build upon it and yeah how about for you any recommended recommended reads on this subject that you found helpful yeah absolutely so i think you know first and foremost to kind of understand a bit more about the motivating factors of why video games um, are so alluring, why they, you know, have been developed to become so immersive, what motivates us to play games um, and understand if you're like a parent or a prevention specialist and you want to know more about that, right? So you can have these conversations in the work you're doing or in your own personal lives. The Psychology of Video Games uh, by Celia Hodent is a wonderful book um, and really does, I think, a good job of of explaining not just the research that exists, but, you know, putting it into an applicable uh, setting where you can see how these relationships might impact people you care about or those that you're working with. Um, so I definitely would recommend that. Uh, there is also a book that is by um, Drs. King, right? Daniel King, Paul Del Fabrio um, on internet gaming disorder. So this is a good one for any clinicians uh, who want to do a bit of a deeper dive into the direct work. This book is uh, looks at theory, assessment, prevention, and treatment, um, and really gives a good overview. They also talk a bit about, you know, what are video games, but doesn't go so deep into the psychology like Celia's book does. But it talks a lot about the theories and models as well that you can implement in working with uh, clients and some of the risk and protective factors, the cognitive features, there's a bunch of screening and assessment tools. So those are all, um, you know, it's a good, a good, well-rounded um, resource that is a bit extensive, right? So it's going to take some time to get through, but a good clinical resource. Um, if you want something that's a good clinical resource, a bit shorter, I will shamelessly plug my own work. Um, I wrote a chapter in the social workers desk reference that was just published this past year that's on internet gaming disorder. And, um, you know, that is a, a couple of pages with a lot of quick information and includes some resources on there as well. Um, for the busy clinician, right, who who just has a few minutes to, to gain some knowledge before that deep dive. Uh, and as for another resource, just to share, of course, on um, if you're looking specifically for like screeners or assessment tools, there is a, a systematic review that looked at all of the screening and assessment tools for gaming disorder. That was by um, Daniel King and many other people who have uh, been in, in this space for quite some time, um, right? We have Sophia Akhab in there, who of course works with the World Health Organization on the topics of gaming disorder, Paul Del Fabrio's in there, um, Joelle um, Below, so, and Mark Potenza. They all work together on this large systematic review that was published uh, in 2020. And um, it gives you a nice highlight of what are, you know, what exists with screening tools and then which are the top ones that meet the current criteria in the DSM-5 and the ICD-11. So you can, you know, either use them as screening tools if you want something shorter, or they have more comprehensive ones that are like 20 or 30 questions. If you have more time and want to use something that's going to give you some more clinical utility areas that you can process on a one-on-one -on -one basis, 
uh, just another great, um, you know, article to read as a researcher, which is um, as a researcher, as a clinician, as a prevention specialist, and it's also open resource, so easily Googleable there. And I'll jump in to add for clinicians uh, to, there's a workbook that Patrick Carnes, Cosette Ray, and I uh, authored together called Facing Internet Technology and Gaming Addiction. Um, and that is just a very useful workbook. It's a workbook for the clients to use in conjunction with their therapist. And it's not appropriate for, for young kids and even young teenagers. But once you're, we're talking about, you know, a 16 and older, it would be actually very appropriate to use. And it's, and it's just a very useful, good supplement uh, for therapy. Excellent. Well, I wanted to ask you both about some of your own publications and, and books and articles and, and uh, studies that you participated in. And, and just sort of pick your brains a little bit into what prompted uh, you to do that. What was it, what was inspiring you to uh, contribute to this, this field? Was there um, like a gap you were seeing that you were hoping to address or a, a skill that you were hoping to teach? What was some of your inspiration in your own publications? Do you want to go first, Stephanie? Sure. Yeah. So I think a couple of things kind of inspired me. Um, first and foremost, there seems to be sometimes it's getting a little better, but there still seems to be this gap that exists between clinical practice and research um, mm -hmm. as far as the applicability of what is in a research study to clinical practice. Um, and of course, as you know, those who are in clinical practice, we know that research informs practice. We have evidence-based practices that are being developed and they are the standard best practice when we're working with others. However, sometimes that research can really occur in a vacuum. And when we're trying to take it and apply it to a real world clinical setting, it's not always translatable, right? We have to, we find ways that we have to adjust it. Um, and Another rule of thumb it, very often with research is that, well, if you modify something, you're taking away some of the validity uh, from the study and, and therefore for watering it down, it might not have the same kind of outcome. So instead of being a clinician who was like, oh no, I'm afraid if I change this one word in my assessment that it's no longer valid and I'm not asking the right um, you know, I'm not asking the right question. So I'm not going to get the right response or being able to use this properly, I thought, well, how great would it be if we just have more clinicians involved in treatment, right? Either because they have their own experiences of working in these applicable settings, but also getting them involved by, um, you know, asking them about what do they want to see being researched? What is, what is of interest to them? So that's where my initial interest in providing research that really complements practice from a practical standpoint came from. Um, and, you know, since then it's evolved into a number of different areas. I'd say that uh, my research interest is by and large with aspects of gaming, but really it's at the intersection between technology use behaviors that includes gaming and, you know, other technology use behaviors, health and wellness among adolescents and adults. Um, and, in my uh, dissertation in particular, I also wanted to take into consideration how complex the human experience is mm -hmm. and um, looked at familial, cultural, and individual constructs amongst a sample of youth that identified as Latinx or Latino, Latino, Latin um, to be able to understand more how these factors would interact or mediate problematic internet use or, you know, gaming disorder at the time. Um, so that's still a goal, right, of my ongoing work is to kind of identify that in all different aspects and seeing um, what would be the most beneficial for clinicians 
with the work that uh, you know I'm doing with this research? How is this going to be directly applicable to them? How do we translate it so that the community can also benefit from this? Um, and recently had an opportunity to do some work um, with Hillary through Restart. And we're working now um, on a manuscript that has developed um, a screening tool, which does just that, right? It's a screening tool that can be self-assessed um, in a, a clinical setting that's more fast-paced so that more people who are working with um, you know, adults or children that, that might have these symptoms of gaming disorder, they can use this tool, put it in their pre-screening intake packet, and then use that to determine is a fuller, more in-depth diagnostic assessment required for me to see if there really is gaming disorder going on here, right? Excellent. Well, Thank you for thank you for your focus on that, and I look forward to getting to hear more that comes out. I uh, when I was looking through your publications before that uh, that one study on the uh, Latino Latino Latinx youth really yeah. stood out to me, and I was I was happy to see you do something like that. I haven't ha had a chance to sit down and read it though. I should confess I haven't read it yet, but. <laughs> It's on my to read list. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> and Hillary, how about you? You've published a, a couple books and some other publications. What has been some of your uh, inspiration or reasons for doing so? Uh, the first thing I published was a co-authored book called Video Games and Your Kids, How Parents Stay in Control which was published in 2008. And at that time, uh, there really wasn't anything in the literature that, uh, that Kim McDaniel and I felt uh, was really addressed to parents. Um, Chris, Chris Rowan had written a book, a, a good book called Virtual Child, but she is an occupational therapist. So she had a different take on it. And so there just was a, a lack of literature, uh, a practical literature for parents about, uh, you know, what is this disorder? How, do, how, how does it work in the brain? How does it affect a child physically, socially, developmentally? And uh, so she and I wrote that book and, uh, and it, it's, uh, you know, it's still a good book. We wrote it at the time um, before smartphones and, you know, it, it, and so it, it's out of date because it's 2008. But um, that's why we wrote that one. The book that uh, Cosette and I published with Patrick Carnes was because clinicians need, uh, you know, work, a good workbook can go a long way in uh, supplementing the work that goes on in, in a therapeutic setting. And uh, so we wanted to do that. And uh, there are two studies that we did that really, there are two papers that Cosette and I co-authored with um, Dr. Sun, Anping Sun, who is in Nevada. And she came and interviewed uh, and did a, a wonderful in-depth qualitative analysis of her interviews with our clients. And, it, and, and that was very, very interesting uh, and, and important work because where the literature tends to be the weakest, I think, is in clinical work and clinical outcomes, treatment outcomes. Uh, mm. There's, there, that just I think is, is where the research is the thinnest. And so I think her research uh, that she did, her analysis has been a really valuable contribution to helping to really understand the etiology and what's going on with severely affected gamers who, who are addicts and in treatment. Um, so that's 
that's just why uh, I've done what I've done. And I'm now doing this international uh, project, although I have to say grandmothering is interfering with it because I've got, I've got two little very new grandbabies. And so they're they're pulling me off track. But when I get back on track, <laughs> trying to understand how the internet is impacting. And, and this is much more qualitative kind of, almost more like uh, being a journalist uh, than anything else. But just really trying to get a sense of how uh, people in Latin America, uh, Africa, South Asia, and so forth, how, how the internet is impacting them is a great interest to me. And I feel as though we in the global North, what we usually refer to as the West, just don't take enough interest and don't know enough about uh, what's going on in those regions of the world and, and how incredibly profoundly impacted they are in fact being uh, through through a lot of technology that is coming not just from Western countries, it's also coming from China and Japan and Korea, but uh, they're just being profoundly impacted. And it's important for us to be, I think, thinking about the whole globe, not just our corners of the world. Can I ask what the end goal for that project is for you? Is it um, do you picture it turning into a, another book or a journal article? Do you, do you have partners to help publish what you find? No, at this point, I'm not worrying about uh, a publisher. Um, I, I'm going to probably create a YouTube channel and, and put some of this out uh, because I'm taking video when I'm doing this. Uh, and so, I mean, it's just to disseminate information. It's two, uh, twofold. One is to disseminate information, but also to uh, talk to people there and, and offer some information, just as Stephanie is doing when she goes uh, with her folks and is educating people. I'm, I want to offer the information that we have uh, to people in these countries. And, and it's what I found in Kenya. I, was, I had the opportunity to do several trainings there with people who were clinicians, social workers and so forth. And it's like they didn't have enough information before I came to really know how to think about, talk about, name the problems that they were seeing. And, mm. uh, and so it, 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 I, I think it was very helpful to them. So I'm hoping to be sort of helpful in the sense of giving tools, uh, giving it some educational materials that may be of use and they would have to adapt to their cultural settings, but at least they got some good uh, tools that they can work with and decide what they want to do with it. And then bring some information back and disseminate it here. So we'll see what comes out of it. That's excellent. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Yes. Is there anything else you guys would really like to see done in this field? Any other research? Mm -hmm. if, if you're not going to champion it, you hope that someone champions the research <laughs> on a given subject. Yeah. Uh, oh, you want to start, Heather? Well, no, I think, you know, the, the area that I'm really interested in right now is this more international scope. Mm -hmm. and, and I've just been talking about it, so I won't say anything more about it right now. So please go ahead. Um, all right, wonderful. Well, I think one area that I'd like to see more research in and, um, you know, historically, it's also been an area that we don't have too much research in is in the prevention work. Um, you know, as a, as a clinician and someone who's worked in prevention um, and continues to work in prevention, I like to try and incorporate prevention in all areas of work, because I, I think that even those who are um, doing direct practice work and might not be, their focus might not be on prevention, there's still an uh, opportunity for them to help prevent gaming disorder from being more severe. Uh, so through programs like, for example, Stack Deck, 
I know, um, you know, I was working with uh, North Carolina and we developed a gaming component to the stack deck curriculum. So we added two, and of course we worked with um, the original founders of the, of the evidence-based program as well to discuss best approaches for doing this and how the curriculum originally came about. So now we have that, that component in there and are testing it in the, the state of North Carolina to see the responsiveness of the adolescents that complete this program. And then we can use the you know, program um, evaluation results to determine, all right, how effective was this? How can we improve upon it? Uh, where is it helping the most and changing some of those knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs that currently exist with adolescents in the gaming space so that we can get them to an area that they're aware of gaming disorder, but also have some tools to help it from happening in their own lives, right? By doing the work directly with the adolescents um, and later down the road, I'd love to see the work with the adolescents and the families because they pay such an important role. Uh, but really here, it's a primary intervention as a prevention standpoint is looking at how do we prevent that from happening. So I'd love to just see more prevention work uh, in the space of, of gaming disorder, seeing people go out into you know various different communities um, and, and tailoring their approaches for the communities that they're working with so we can find what is uh, the best way to help these adolescents prevent to prevent them from developing gaming disorder, but also just giving them the tools that we know are going to be helpful with this ever evolving and fast paced changing, um, you know, gaming landscape. I love that. I, I just want to say I love that and really concur with you. I mean, prevention's where it's at. Mm. Let's try to prevent the problem in the first place. And, uh, you know, as research accumulates, you know, we we have more and more evidence about what does work, what is effective. And uh, so I, I really concur. Agree. And, and uh, I think in terms of things to research for prevention purposes, one thing I would also personally love to see is um, on the subject of virtual reality and augmented reality, you know, I've, I've, I've heard some discussion of it might be more addicting in the sense that it's more submersive and more escaping, or it could be less addicting because uh, the, at the moment, the way the technology is, the body can get physically exhausted. You can get headaches and you can, you know, get a little dizzy and, and things like that more with virtual reality or augmented reality than with, you know, just staring at a a TV screen. I'd, I'd love to see some more research on that and the potential health outcomes and mental health outcomes for that. And I think it's not going to go anywhere. I kind of feel like it's going to be more integrated as the years go on. And who knows what outcomes, uh, what babies might be made by VR, AR plus gambling plus work life, school life, and, and uh, virtual currencies, and, and who knows what we're going to end up accessible to uh, or have access to later on. So that's just, that's just more of a curiosity of mine, uh, but who knows? Well, we're already, I, I will just tell you, Tana, that we are here at Restart already starting to see a few clients coming in with early exposure to, to VR. And it has not been good. <laughs> and that has, and is that um, a platform that has become kind of the primary um, a, a addictive platform or behavior for them, like the most damage causing? Is mm -hmm. that's what you're saying for some? Wow, just a few. I mean, wow. most most of our clients are not coming in with any heavy. VR and any addictive kind of VR use, but just a few have, and mm -hmm. their their mental health is uh, more severe. Mm -hmm. Their mental health problems mm -hmm. are more severe. Mm -hmm. We have found, really, the to the point of borderline psychosis, and which is completely understandable given <laughs> the immersive nature that you refer to. 
And if you're a child and you don't, you know, you're just developing your sense of what the world is really all about. And so if you're immersed in a false reality, it, it you know, it's understandably confusing. Wow. That is fascinating. And you know what? That reminds me. And I just, I just quoted you the other day, Hillary. It was yesterday, I think, because I was doing a training on youth gambling and gaming. And I'll never forget. You might be the reason I got interested in this field because I had just moved to Washington in 2015. And I think it was my first ECPG conference and you were speaking at it. And you talked about how in residential treatment, some clients would come in and not just need to detox from the game, but essentially detox from the character that they were playing in the game and re-identify with their own personal identity and personality versus the identity and personality of the character they had been playing day in and day out for so many hours. And maybe that's why I'm interested in the subject of VR because it makes that so much more uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's absolutely fascinating, Hillary. And thank you for sharing, uh, you know what what you've been seeing so far. Just listening to both of you talk, some of the thoughts that come to my mind is that you know this is in in the simplest form. This is dissociation, is what it sounds like to me, right? They're just they have this lack of continuity between their thoughts or memories or surroundings, your actions and your identity. Um, from being immersed in this virtual reality world. And I, I um, you know, in, in my trainings, just like I like to put in a little bit of some prevention messaging, I also um, come from a trauma-focused, uh, trauma-informed approach and thinking about just some of the adverse responses or reactions from someone who's experienced um, trauma in their lives. And a lot of children have, we know now more than ever and how that impacts them. Dissociation is a very common response that we see as well, right? That disconnect of, from yourself and the world around you and the immersiveness of VR, um, and AR is, it does, it, it is designed to do that, right? It's designed to pull you into another world. Um, and so what, what's the impact going to be long-term on that? What's that going to look like? I, uh, I actually attended a esports conference event in um, Vegas at the beginning of um, of PGAM, and uh, the conversation was around esports and casinos. And um, there were many panels that were uh, video game developers sitting next to regulators for gambling, talking about the way that they can implement their video games, esports within the casino worlds. Uh, and it was really interesting to hear from the industry side the thoughts they had. There was one panel that focused on the metaverse, and that was, which is exactly what you're, you know, I'm talking about, Tana. And it, mm-hmm. it, it was just very interesting to see the almost disconnect between their opinions on the work they're doing, um, and then the, considering some of the, you know, ethical implications of how this might impact others. They were pretty receptive to hearing thoughts. You know, of course, I let my opinions and thoughts be known on 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 when the Q and A came up on, on all these topics. But I mean, essentially, what I took away from that conference is that we're definitely heading in that direction. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of investors. They had former uh, athletes, NFL athletes, NBA athletes, who are pouring in a lot of investment money into developing these technologies because they they see you know the interest that exists in them but i also think it's important just like with the development of any technology since we don't have regulations around it to consider what are some of the adverse consequences that can come from it right um and instead of just putting it all on the individual who's engaging with the game or the family or the caregivers of the person um we should also you know ask the industry what are you kind of doing to safeguard against this when you're starting to see that, you know, that's a larger macro conversation, but I, I think it's important for, for, for people to, to think that way, to have these kind of thoughts and, um, you know, find some, some other solutions as well. Mm. 
Excellent. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. I don't want to take any more of your time. I just really respect um, your willingness to come on and have this this conversation where you don't have to train and present slides and all this kind of thing and just be able to talk. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I drank Excellent. my iced coffee while we chatted. It felt like we were all together. It was great. <laughs> Excellent. I was snacking on some, not chocolate chips. They're like cream cheese, little chips. They're mm. highly <laughs> recommend. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, take care, both of you. Thank you so much. Uh, just really appreciate your time. And anything I can do to help in these efforts, of course, always reach out. Thanks for listening. Here's where to find us. You can learn more about the Evergreen Council on Problem Gambling at our website at www.evergreencpg.org. You can also find us and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Please know that if you or a loved one is seeking help for problems caused by gambling, you are not alone and help is available. You can find help and resources 24-7 through the Washington Problem Gambling Helpline at 1-800-547-6133. That's 1-800-547-6133. There's help for anyone affected by problems caused by gambling, whether it's your own or someone else's. And we love seeing people get the help they need to live the life they want. Let's see. Oh, I forgot to give Ayla her dog bone while we recorded that. She gets it now.